everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Sunshine Boys podcast. I'm Jim Williams, your host, along with Ira Kaufman, Joe Henderson, the Sunshine Boys themselves. Up in Boston, we have Tim Williams, and our special guest today is someone who just wrote a, a really entertaining book. It's called The Arena, Inside the Tailgating, Ticket Scalping, Mascot Racing, Dubiously Funded, and Possibly Haunted Monuments of American Sports. He is Rafi Kohan. Um, Rafi, welcome to uh, oh. the Sunshine Boys. It's good to have you aboard. And uh, so great to be here. Tell us a little bit about this book. Well, you know, really, so much of the premise of the book actually is right there in the subtitle. You know, tailgating, ticket scalping, all that mess. Uh, and the book really is sort of a deep dive into everything but the game. Um, you know, everything around in and around stadiums that sort of make the experience so great that we don't always necessarily pay as much attention to as I think we should. And once you start paying attention to them, you realize how much of, you know, going out, going out to a ball game or a football Saturday or Sunday really is made by some of these other elements. Joe, Ira, and Tim, any questions you might have for Rafi uh, based on what he's talking about here? Yeah. Go ahead, Joe. Or Ira? Go ahead, Ira. Or right. Joe. Uh, Rafi, what, what, um, what teams uh, come to your mind uh, that do the best job in, uh, in, in making the game day experience uh, special? Yeah, I, that's a good question. And I think it's a, a little bit different per sport, right? Because, uh, you know, what you want to do to sort of augment the game depends on, you know, sort of the taste of the game itself and the action. Uh, for you know, I wrote one chapter that was dedicated specifically to fan entertainment, uh, as, we might, as we might call it. They would call it fan engagement. Um, and I spent most of my time there in Kansas City. I uh, went, uh, went up into a sort of control room at Arrowhead and Kauffman Stadium and sort of saw the behind the scenes, how they you know, make the Jumbotron work. I trailed uh, the mascots through a, through a game and I ran on the field with uh, the hot dog race. Uh, and all that stuff is really, you know, is really great. And I think, you know, a lot of fans, especially not real fans, you know, and not to draw a distinction or, you know, to make any sort of judgments. Uh, but folks who de- aren't necessarily wanting to sit through an entire game, that really makes a difference for them. Um, you know, the Cleveland Cavaliers uh, do a really good job in terms of, you know, timeouts and having the hype team run around and shoot confetti cannons into the air. I don't know if they actually do that, but it just feels like that. You know, it just feels like there's a million things going on at once. Um, and But if you really the truth the absolute best place to go see some fan entertainment is minor league ballparks because uh, that's where they really got to work hard for your uh you know for your ticket and for your dollars um the saint paul saints are are renowned for for going out on a limb in terms of some of their promotions and giveaways and, and they had ball pigs that would bring the balls to the umpire um and they had i think there was one game where they had a, a instead of umpires they actually had a judge and jury and they had a you know, like a like a group of people who just sat in a box and they and they ruled on the you know and they ruled on the games out safe and out and things like things of that nature. I have a that's, follow up uh, to that. that. That's, Go ahead, Joe. I was going to say the St. Paul Saints. That's Mike Vec, uh, son of Bill Vec, and that's exactly uh, right. Mike had a had a, a short very short-lived experience with the what was then the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. They brought him in, uh, I believe it might have been in year three, year two or year three, to liven up the fan experience. And um, I think he found Major League Baseball to be much less uh, open to some of his suggestions, <laughs> among which included painting the roof at the Tropicana Field, the dome, painting it blue with puffy little clouds on it to simulate uh, the outdoor experience. Um, he didn't last long with the race. Yeah. No, I think he found, yeah, he found the uh, major league experience to be a more stifling one uh, than, uh, you know, than minor leagues where, where a little bit more, a little bit more is fair game. Yeah, I mean, the St. Paul Saints, they have a uh, Bill Murray is their official team psychologist. So, you know, we, we're, we're dealing with a different, you know, a different element here. Tim, go ahead. 
My question is, you mentioned the entertainment experience, and then you you quickly mentioned real fans, not trying to make fun of anybody, but you did mention that, and you live in the Northeast, and of course I've lived in the Northeast most of my life as well, so there are a lot of places where there really isn't anything but the game going on as well. There are certain places like, you know, New York, Boston kind of places where they don't have a lot of fan prompts, a lot of sideshow sort of stuff and what's your personal preference because all the entertainment can be fun but i know a lot of people who would really just rather watch the game and see it presented as itself so you personally what's your preference on that do you like the showmanship or would you rather it just be presented as straight up sport totally fair question and i really mean it that i'm not i mean i don't have any judgment in terms of who enjoys what but you're exactly right. I mean, in Fenway Park, they go to extreme measures to make sure that they don't interfere with the game. I mean, that's a big part of, you know, of, of the recent renovations was to try and preserve as much of that kind of, you know, unique history as possible. And some of that was not sort of interjecting, you know, uh, a kind of live screen experience into that. Um, for me personally, I really like it when I can just focus uh, straight on the game, especially if it's a team I'm rooting for, uh, because that's what I go there for. Uh, at the same time, uh, I would be lying to you if I didn't if I didn't uh, get a kick out of seeing you know a monkey riding on the back of a dog during uh during the NBA half during NBA halftime performance or or you know some of those you know t-shirt Gatling guns that shoot you know machine gun style into the stands. So in, in that way, maybe it's also a little bit more sports specific because the, the NBA kind of lends itself with its kind of fast pace of action and then these stops whether it's a timeout or a quarter break or the halftime when you really have an extended break where what the hell else are you going to do you need someone to entertain the fans and that makes more sense to me than necessarily having when you have 20 seconds you know in between you know in between a pitch or you know a minute and a half two minutes whatever it is at the end of an inning break to try and interject in that much smaller space of time Rafi, Rafi Coleman is with us. He, of course, author of The Arena. And uh, Rafi, in that subtitle, which is as long as some books that I've actually read, um, <laughs> what does the term dubiously funded mean? Sure. Uh, well, I think I think we've all sort of, you know, all sports fans have kind of heard, you know, the murmurs in recent years and, you know, maybe decades about sort of the debate between um, public versus private money in terms of w- who funds these facilities. And, yes. and oftentimes, you know, it's, you know, it's usually a mix. Um, but what dubiously funded specifically talks to is, uh, you know, speaking to in my mind is this kind of claim that stadiums are in fact good economic drivers, good, you know, good for economic activity. And, from my experience and from talking with many uh, sports economists and stadium economists, the fact of the matter is that all the evidence suggests that the stadiums are not at all good economic drivers. In fact, in many places, they have net negative effects um, on the economy, especially when you start looking more macroscopically in terms of a region as opposed to like right around a stadium neighborhood. Because, of course, there's going to be greater activity on the day of a game because that's where you're redirecting the community's attention. Um, that being said, one of my takeaways is just because that they don't create economic value doesn't mean that stadiums don't bring value at all to a community. Um, I think there are things to consider like quality of life and civic pride. Uh, and when it comes down to it, if, if uh, you know, communities are going to be asked to chip in, then they should just be having honest conversations in terms of, you know, what are we really bringing this stadium here for and what are we willing to pay for it? In the same way you would ask that about a golf course or, or an arts district. You know, you're not expecting that to make you rich, but you're expecting it to enrich your life somehow. Well, you know, Rafi, I, I completely agree with that. And, and I'll even go a step further uh, to say that um, communities, if they, if they do decide to use your words, chip in, usually uh, at the point of extortion. Um, yeah, chip in $700 million. Yeah, you know, if you've got, you got a billion bucks laying around, we'd like, to, we'd like you to lend us a hand. Um, but the truth is, 
communities have these facilities because they want them. We went through that in Tampa uh, when the Buccaneers back in the uh, mid to late 90s were threatening to, to move to Baltimore, move to Cleveland, move to Timbuktu if they didn't get what they wanted. And after much controversy, and I won't go into the whole detail, but there was a, a referendum that included funding for the stadium, and it passed uh, 53 to 47%. And that tells you there was a pretty significant divide in the community, and it was a record turnout uh, vote. And I've always believed that people basically knew they were getting screwed in the lease and that the Bucks were getting a sweetheart deal, which they were. And they just said, we don't care. We want football. And you know what? You can argue uh, whether that was a wise use of, of taxpayer money, but the community said they want it. And to me, that that trumps everything. Absolutely, and and especially it's in the, you know in the cases where it does go to a you know to a ballot, because I mean in in those cases you really can't then you can't argue if if folks voted for it then that's what they wanted. And you're right, of course it's going to be divided. These are extremely contentious campaigns when they do when they do go to a referendum. But there are also a lot of um, a lot of examples of places where uh, politicians and the team owners circumvent uh, the, the voters altogether. And those are the situations that are a little bit more uh, worrisome. See Miami. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Rafi, uh, one thing that I can tell you here from in the Washington area, uh, when Abe Poland built the, um, at that time, the MCI Center uh, in in what was Chinatown at that point, when he literally went down there for the first visit to Chinatown, which is where they wanted him to build. And it, it, he was, he was, they were putting up the land. He was putting up the actual money for the building. And that happens a lot, as you know. Um, yeah. When Abe, when they stopped in the neighborhood to show Abe where he wanted, they wanted him to build the arena. He was about to get out of the car to take a look when they stopped the car and they told him, no, don't get out. You know, something could happen to you. Um, yeah. You now, if you went to that area, the MCI Center, which is now the Verizon Center, is the hub of a multi-billion dollar, you know, renovation in that Chinatown neighborhood where now it's, you know, Disney-fied. I mean, you can wander around there all hours of the day and night and not fear for anything. Uh, the right. same situation is going on down at Nationals Park. So what I guess what I'm saying is, you know, yes, I, it, is, it, is it sometimes a problem to build it because you're never going to get, you know, money on the return. But if you build it in the right spot, you can then build around it with um, both residential uh, and commercial businesses that will create a neighborhood that may not have been there or revitalize as they did in Baltimore on the waterfront when they built Camden Yards. Um, right. To create. Or in Cleveland. A, yeah, in Cleveland, Cleveland where exactly. They did, where Very they good point. The gateway, gateway district. Yeah, the gateway. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. If you take an isolation of the stadium, yeah, probably that's not necessarily a good deal. But uh, I don't know. Did you talk to Andy Zimelis? Uh, yeah. Andy yeah. and I. And have this conversation all the time. It's the where the where you're putting the facility versus what happens to mushroom around it. If you build it right. out in a regional area, that's not going to help you. If you build it in an area, uh, let's take the Ybor City concept, which Joe you were talking about last time. If you built a stadium in that area, it's quite possible that that may mushroom to build a community that didn't exist around it prior. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and look, the the economics of the stadium itself don't change, but mm -hmm. stadiums can absolutely be an important sort of anchor or bargaining chip when it comes to projects of targeted redevelopment, which is really what you're talking about. Right. Uh, I spoke to um, an economist by the name of Roger Knoll. He's a, a emeritus professor at uh, Stanford and sort of one of the like OGs of stadium economics. Right. Uh, and and he's and one of the, I was asking I was talking to him specifically about this and this is what he 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 sort of landed on which is stadiums in this way can in fact be very useful political tools when they're specifically included in larger development plans um, 
and especially in a city or an area that really could use a boost. Uh, this is a quote from him. I just happened to have this up. And he says, having the government commit successfully to a 20-year redevelopment project is a considerable political achievement. And including sports will get you 20 to 25% of the electorate. It adds to the coalition. So the point is that when, you're, when you have sort of a political agenda you know, to redevelop an area, to reinvigorate an area, that it can make sense to include sports because it gets people excited. Um, the truth is, is that if you could get the same energy behind doing that same kind of redevelopment and having, you know, retail and residential and all of those things without the sports as the anchor, you'd probably still have the same, if not better, uh, economic activity there. But the political realities are such that it, it doesn't hurt to have the stadium because it actually excites people. And when it's built in such a way, like Gateway, uh, where I spent where I spent time, where the the ballpark and the arena actually interact with the district around it, so that the restaurant and the bars and the shops are getting activity before and after the game, then that is a boost. That helps, uh, and that's targeted redevelopment. Again, it's specific to a particular area, not region wide. Region wide, it would it still doesn't change the economics. But I mean, that is, you know miles better than what you're originally talking about. Those sort of, you know, what we think of those concrete donuts out in the middle of the burbs, you know, mm -hmm. a highway drive away surrounded by nothing but parking lots, because that captures all of the economic activity within the walls of the stadium. At least when it's sort of anchoring a district like that, it can participate in the district. And that, and that does matter. It's amazing how we can use Miami's illustration for all of that. <laughs> Sunlight Stadium. Okay, yes. Yeah. Well, let's get off the stadium business. Um, one quick one. I know we keep kept you a little longer than than. Oh, uh, happy to talk. We had hoped to hear, Ravi. Uh, Ravi, um, the other part is you have a very curious thing with regard to the haunted monuments of American sports. What's what's that all about? You know, I think you can interpret that in a bunch of ways. Um, because in some ways, uh, you know, I. For myself, I went back and looked through all the times that I just mentioned ghosts throughout this book. You know, mm -hmm. I think about ghosts when you think about, you know, the old venues like Wrigley and Fenway and Lambeau, the fact that there's the ghosts of tradition and the old players that used to play there, um, or the sort of ghosts of your old relatives, you know, your dad or granddad who brought you there for mm -hmm. the first time. Um, I think I thought about ghosts when I was reporting the chapter about uh, the Superdome. And of course, you know, a big part of the Superdome history at this point is Hurricane Katrina. And you got to think about all the ghosts that are trapped inside of that dome there now uh, from what happened during that time and, and afterwards. The, and, and actually, uh, to tell you the truth, uh, there, was, there was a theory that the Superdome was haunted even before that because it was built on top of a cemetery, right. um, you know, uh, the Gerard Street Cemetery. Yep. And then in my last chapter, which is where I sort of investigate you know, what happens to these places after the crowds and the players move on? Uh, and I spent time in the Silverdome, the abandoned Silverdome, though the owners would take, uh, take issue with the term abandoned, uh, since technically they're still, they're still there, at least one or two guys a day. Um, that the guys, the, the security guards, um, actually believe that the Silverdome is haunted, uh, legitimately haunted. In fact, one of them took me on a tour and brought me up to a suite where he swore to God that he saw a ghost there. Um, and then he pointed across the way and showed me where there were other phantom figures. And, and to tell you the truth, I was a little bit startled at that, at the, the last one, when I saw the phantom figure before I realized what it, it was just a reflection off some old uh, luxury box class. Uh, but, you know, in these big empty places, I mean, you know, the mind, the mind starts to, starts to wander and you start to believe things are possible that you wouldn't necessarily believe in normal under normal circumstances. You know, um, the uh, old, I know, Joe, you and Ira probably remember the old um, municipal stadium in Minneapolis. Um, oh, sure. And uh, it was an, the, the scoreboard side of it was relatively open. And uh, Carl Eller used to tell a story that he would say to his friends that the the players coming in, there was a terrible wind that usually came toward the third or fourth quarter and stayed for the remainder of the game, usually after October. And mm -hmm. um, 
And Carl came up with a story that this, that that wind was called Odin, and Odin was a wind that was, you know, a Nordic wind that was coming to help <laughs> the the uh, help the Vikings yeah. push it across in the end. And he actually had people psyched out that that wind actually was the wind well, called sure. Odin. You know, I mean, so, think about the you know the Cubs before they won the World Series. You know, right. the the idea of even a curse and and the Billy the players, Do the players yeah. buy into that? Of course they don't. But I tell you what, when it got to you know when it get late in October, you know late in September or early right. October, and they're playing those games, they would admit that there's a little bit of anxiety that would creep into their minds. That what if that would kind of eat away at them? Or you know Yankee Stadium, you know bottom of the ninth. They would talk. They would say that's when the ghost came out. Old Yankee Stadium. Let's right. clarify. Uh, but uh, that's you know we believe in that stuff, don't we, as sports fans? Yeah, the new Yankee Stadium. The only thing that's going to come out is Goldman Sachs executives. Um, <laughs> but anyway, hey, uh, guys, any hey, final Jim, questions uh, for Rafi? Go ahead, hey, Jim. That 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 Minneapolis win didn't help the Vikings when Drew Pearson pushed off and uh, and caught that pass from. Uh, from Stallback, and, uh, and and the Viking fans are still pissed off about that play. Uh, yep. R- Rafi, who, who's got who's got the best tailgate in America? Who's got it? Oh man, uh, I tell you what, there are some good tailgaters out there, and you're going to get a different flavor of tailgate everywhere you go. Um, I'll tell you that the most fun place to see a game, and and I don't think they're the best tailgaters. Let me clarify that was outside of AT&T Stadium where the Cowboys play. And I think part of it is is that so many people are there just to see the spectacle, you know, of the stadium itself. Um, but, but the, you know, the Oakland Raiders fans, they sure knew how to throw down. And the Packers fans <laughs> know how to have a good time. Uh, yes. They're, you know, if you go somewhere, if you're going, if you, if you find someone to go to a game with and they know how to, you know, how to cook, cook the meat out on the grill, you know, to cook it exactly right, then it doesn't really matter where you are. Chug a few beers, grill some sausages. Yeah, have a good time. Then you forget about the game, Jim. <laughs> there's yeah. sometimes there's sometimes I've had tailgates that are better than the game. So and, you know, I'm sure you guys. <laughs> Joe, Tim, any final questions for Rafi before we let him go? Um, quick question. Give me your best mascot. Well, my uh, I think I think we're, if we're talking best mascots. I think it's probably got to go back to the San Diego chicken, the original. I, I interviewed him. Ted I didn't really Ginolas. include him in the book. Yeah. Ted Ginolas. I He's, you know, he, he told me something, which is uh, that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something to the extent of, you know, you know, Babe Ruth didn't, didn't invent the home run, but he perfected it. And he was making an analogy to sort of himself as a mascot. And I think, you know, there's an argument to be made that he sort of launched the movement. And then, of course, you get the Philly Fanatic and the Phoenix Gorilla and Mr. Met. Uh, in terms of team mascots, I don't know that you can get, you know, you can get much better than the Philly Fanatic. But uh, let's take our hats off to, to Ted. Absolutely. He uh, worked very well with us uh, on the TV side. There were many times that he would walk over, put his beak over the camera so that you no longer could see. <laughs> Um, he one time actually took our handheld and, and ran it. Um, Ted worked hard. I mean, he, when you paid Ted to, to promote and to be part of your, uh, experience, you didn't, uh, you didn't get, uh, cheated. Uh, I'm going to throw one more out there. You probably didn't do, I didn't say anything in the book about it, but he's somebody that, uh, that Joe and I know well, and maybe even Ira crazy George, um, was someone who used to show up in Tampa (laughs) all the time. And Crazy George was a, a, a an outstanding. Uh, I, I'm not sure you could call him a mascot, but uh, he certainly got the crowd going. And so um, he was in the same realm as Ted. He was a showman who worked the entire uh, length of the game, regardless of whether it was a an exciting game or a bad game. He was uh, he made it very entertaining. Yeah, sure. I, yeah, then I, he probably he probably launched a lot of the super fans that have kind of, you know, come right. in his wake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, tell you what, Rafi, it's been fantastic um, chatting with you. Rafi Cohen, who is uh, Cohen, I'm sorry. Um, Cohen, yes. Cohen, I apologize. He's a Cohen. Okay. okay, that's good. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a Cohen, uh, but you are a Cohen. Um, yeah. 
author of the arena, inside the tailgating, the ticket scalping, the mascot racing, the dubiously funded and possibly haunted monuments of American sports. You can get that book. We're going to link it uh, on the page here. Uh, You can buy it at Amazon. And Rafi, it's been uh, a pleasure. Thanks very much for joining us. And we'll be back with more of the Sunshine Boys right after this word from our friends at Amazon. Hey, everyone. Let's talk a little bit about Amazon Prime. Now, if you are a fan of the Sunshine Boys, then you're going to get a free 30-day trial of Amazon Prime. Now, besides the bargains you get on pretty much everything you could ever possibly want, you get two days free shipping. In some cases, in some areas, you even get one day free shipping. Okay? You also get free access to Amazon Prime Video, the home of great original content like The Man in the High Castle, Transparent, plus some of your favorite binge-watching shows like Orphan Black, 24, or Downton Abbey. You also get access to thousands of very cool albums and CDs on Amazon Music, all for free. That's right. So, no reason why you should not take that 30-day trial that we're offering to you right here at the Sunshine Boys. Give Amazon Prime a 30-day free trial on us. We guarantee you're going to sign up afterwards. Just click the link in the box below. That's click the link in our description box to get 30 free days of Amazon Prime. Welcome back to this edition of the Sunshine Boys podcast. I'm Jim Williams. Joining me, of course, the Sunshine Boys themselves, Ira Kaufman, Joe Henderson, and Tim Williams up in Boston. Um, Joe, uh, tragic situation, somebody that we knew very well. Uh, Great guy. John Reeves passed uh, very, very early in life for someone as talented and as gifted as a guy by the name of John Reeves, who quarterbacked at Robinson High School, went on to play at the University of Florida and uh, had a interesting career in the NFL, but was probably more distinctively uh, thought of as the Bandits quarterback. Well, uh, actually, I would say John probably better thought of as a Gator quarterback. Um, yeah, it's true. That's that's how people in Florida will always remember him. Mm-hmm. Although it's 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 interesting. He was recently uh, just a, a month or so ago. Uh, he announced on his Facebook page with with his kind of his trademark humor that he mm-hmm. had been chosen one of the fifty all-time Cincinnati Bengals during really? his time there. And as a dedicated follower of the Bengals, I don't. I, you know, I like John. I talked to him uh, at training camp at Wilmington when, when he was up there with the Bengals. We had good times. I don't really remember him being that effective uh, with the Bengals, but nobody can take away what he did uh, with the Gators. And, you know, if, if some of our listeners are going, who the heck is John Reeves? Um, let me, let me enlighten you a little bit. He, uh, came on the scene in 1969 back when uh, teams established the run you know how that works right all college football was just it was Woody Hayes Bo Schimpeckler pound into the line football that was what football was it was a a test of wills three yards and a cloud of dust yeah yeah, uh, and and the Florida Gators were coming off um, a fairly mediocre season and we're opening up at home with the Houston Cougars, who uh, in one poll were ranked number one in the nation. Mm-hmm. And the Gators were starting all these sophomores, including sophomore quarterback John Reeves. Now, that was back when you couldn't play as a freshman. So first college game, you're in against the team expected to win the national championship. Good luck. Well, the plays into the line for little or no game. And on the third play, they uh, Gators turned him loose, and he threw a 70-yard touchdown strike to Carlos Alvarez. And it was—I think it was one of—it was one of four touchdowns Reeves threw in the first half, and five overall in the game. The Gators won the game, 59 to 34. Was born. He was. They were known as the Super Softs. They went on to a a nine one one season, which was would have been unthinkable uh, 
back when the season started. And he never quite they, there were there was a little bit of turmoil in the uh in the program at that point. Uh, the head coach Ray Graves had I think he retired after Reeves sophomore season. Yeah. In comes Doug Dickey. Doug established the run Dickey and um from Tennessee. Doug had success, but it, it he you can argue that he didn't really know how to use John Reeves, didn't like his style, didn't like much about him. And so they never quite reached that height again, but John did become a number one draft pick of the Philadelphia Eagles, 14th overall. I had some success there um, and then began to bounce around a little bit. The Bengals, as we mentioned, and uh, he was actually a replacement quarterback, uh, Back when the NFL was on strike, he played a couple of games as a Buccaneer uh, in his hometown here in Tampa. And as you mentioned, uh, with the USFL Tampa Bay Bandits, where he kind of rediscovered who he was. They were playing under uh, Coach Steve Spurrier, and you you can imagine what Spurrier was doing. And uh, <laughs> he showed a glimpse maybe of, of what he could have been in, in the right situation in the NFL. But, you know... John, nobody's trying to pretend he didn't have issues, um, but had some highly publicized um, situations, legal situations, um, had trouble with alcohol, as people knew. But the thing I will always remember about John Reeves was his laugh. Mm -hmm. Kind of an infectious laugh uh, from a guy who was enjoying life and he was doing his dead level best to get his life straightened out by all accounts. He had done a pretty darn good, successful job at doing that. Uh, he, uh, I don't judge a person when they're point. Uh, I judge them by what they try to do about it. And John Reeves tried to really, uh, uh, and, by all accounts, did, and you know, Tampa today is is mourning. Uh, we are we are sorry for his passing. Um, I like the guy, and uh, a, a football team in heaven that needs a quarterback because they just got a good one. You know, a um, couple things about John I, that I recall. John, of course, was a quarterback at Robinson High School. Um, I'm a graduate of Chamberlain High School, and um, that means you got your butt kicked by them, didn't you? Always, uh, but <laughs> interestingly enough, my cousin Paul was a defensive back for Chamberlain, and we would torture him mercilessly uh, every time Robinson played against um, Chamberlain, because there would be pictures in the Tampa Tribune of Joe of. Um, John throwing a touchdown and my cousin Paul's arm being out there just not quite far enough to knock the ball away. Um, so we have we had a clip reel of pictures of <laughs> that we had. Here's Paul's hand not blocking that pass. Here's another touchdown John threw over Paul. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was kind of a family fun thing. Paul would go on to play uh, defensive back, ironically, at Tennessee. Again, my disdain for Rocky Top continues, but nevertheless, um, he he played there. The other thing was, and people forget this, um, John was part of a, a somewhat controversial game against the University of Miami where he was about to break Jim Plunkett's all-time NCAA passing record um, in a game against the University of Miami. And was it yes, was indeed. Percy the coach? <laughs> Fran, the coach, I believe in he Miami. was. Yeah. Well. Yeah. The uh, the, the, the Gator the time was running out. Time <laughs> was running out to do it, and basically Miami had the ball, if I'm not mistaken, inside the twenty, and what became the Florida flop, the 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 um, Dicky flop, whatever you want to call it, uh, happened, and that was I don't know what play Fran called, but I think it was a running play. And um, literally, 
all 11 Florida Gators fell to the ground as if they had been shot. And, you know, basically the guy walks in. Yeah, it was, was, no, it's just one of the more infamous moments in in Gator history um, because it was, I mean, just, those kind of plays happen, you know, yeah. and everybody kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Right. But at least you, you. They didn't try to hide it at all. It was like, <laughs> no. It, and, it, was uh, like and then, a, it was like somebody had had a dart gun and just shot everybody on the floor. You know what team. it was? It was like it was like Star Trek, where they send down the beam that just oh, knocks yeah. everybody out. <laughs> right. I mean, it was like. Yeah, the um, phasers on stun. Yes. It's like, yeah, and and down goes. Down go the Gators, but uh, you know it's uh, that was in 1971, I believe. And, right, and, and John got uh, the John got the John got John they got, got the ball back, and John got the record, right? John got the record, and um, it was uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd forgotten about that, but that was uh, that was an unbelievable moment. Actually, the funny thing was uh, Miami was actually on the eight yard line as i recall is that what it was and, okay. uh, and, i could remember and, exactly uh, where they were um you you were correct fran kersey was the uh was the miami coach at the time he called it quote the worst thing i've ever seen in football <laughs> and so who does uh who does reeves set the record with oh, pass to carlos alvarez there you go so you know, and, and a you lot know, of people don't realize what a wonderfully talented wide receiver Carlos Alvarez was. Oh, well, he's in the Hall of Fame, College Football Hall of Fame, and he should be. Uh, just a tremendously talented player. And it, I believe he's an attorney now. Uh, yeah. Maybe in Tallahassee. Uh, yeah, he's a lobbyist. Is a little weird. But, um, you know, that, yeah, that, uh, that, that Gator era back then was was a lot of fun and you know they, they always say that that Gators will mark the time when Steve Spurrier came in and and you know instituted the fun and gun and started throwing the ball all over the field and the Gators were running up 50 60 points a week but that you know what John Reeves and and, and the Gators Super Softs did back then shouldn't be forgotten because that was really uh, as much or more so against the grain uh, in 1969 as what Spurrier did uh, in the early 90s. Well, there certainly wasn't anybody in the SEC that was throwing the ball around as much as Reeves and and that whole gang. Absolutely, and was... you know, and to be fair, Spurrier did win the Heisman uh, at Florida and Master Two back then. But, well, didn't um, and didn't Spurrier hire John to be uh, a coach at Florida? I believe he did. Quarterback um, coach, that, I think. Quarterback coach, and mm-hmm. and and John did a little bit of coaching. Um, right. And his son, Tampa, his son uh, was involved in coaching as well. Was uh, um, an assistant uh, at the University of South Florida uh, with Willie Taggart, mm-hmm. and uh, the. When, once that gets in your blood, it's hard to uh, to shake it. But uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, I mean, Reeves, Tampa, he had a a, a real estate business. Um, as we mentioned, he did have a, a few uh, legal run-ins, and uh, mm-hmm. he got treatment. He did, you know, try to address his problem, and uh, I respected that about him, and. Uh, he is uh, is and was and always will be beloved by Gator Nation. Outstanding. Well, uh, as you said, Tampa's uh, missing John Reeves. One other uh, note of passing. Um, former Notre Dame head coach Era Parsegian died at the age of 94. Uh, Era, for many, uh, people remembered him for his... Um, his broadcasting um, abilities as he used to do the college football game of the week, uh, first with Keith Jackson for many, many years um, as an analyst. And uh, probably, and Joe, you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong on this one, uh, the game that most people remember uh, 
Eric Parsegian as a head coach turned out to be a game where another Tampa person was involved, and that was uh, Steve Garvey, a Chamberlain High School graduate, who played uh, in the famous 10-10 tie for what then was a mythical national championship. I think that game was played in 1966, if I'm not mistaken. And it was played for the national championship between Michigan State, which Duffy Doherty had coached at that time, and Eric Parsegian, who had his uh, Notre Dame Fighting Irish. The game ended up in a 10-10 tie um, not long after um, Garvey, who played for Michigan State at the time as a linebacker, uh, signed to play baseball for the Dodgers. But that was supposedly... Uh, to many, one of the great uh, games of all time because it, uh, you know, they, it was a battle all day long, and they ended up in a ten-ten tie. Well, uh, what a lot of people uh, they they criticized uh, Parsegian mercilessly uh, for mm-hmm. quote settling for a tie. Uh, it was late in the game. Uh, Notre Dame had the ball. It, this this was a, a game between the number one and number two ranked teams in the. Number one is Michigan State. Mm -hmm. And uh, what people forget was that Notre Dame was playing without a lot of their key players. There there had been injuries. Mm -hmm. uh, And uh, Ann Raddy, the starting quarterback uh, for Notre Dame, had uh, dislocated his shoulder during that game. Mm -hmm. And uh, the backup quarterback uh, had a had a physical issue that day as well for Notre Dame. So it got down to the final couple of minutes and Notre Dame just said, you know what, we're tied. Uh, you know, we're not going to risk uh, with a, with a substandard quarterback uh, throwing a, a, an interception that would, that would cost them a national championship. And they, and uh, the funny thing about that uh, year, but Notre Dame, I think, wound up being voted number one. Yeah, they did, even though they lost to um, Ohio. I mean, um, Michigan State. They didn't lose to Michigan State. They tied. Michigan no, tied. State. I'm sorry. I apologize. Of course, <laughs> I just said it. And, I mean, so clearly, my mind uh, went totally out the window. Uh, but here's here's what's here's what's funny is. Neither Notre Dame nor Michigan State that year played in a bowl game. No. Well, back in those days, if you remember, the only bowl that uh, you could play in if you were the Big Ten is if you won the the, the, uh, Big Ten championship, you'd get to play in the Rose Bowl. But because of the tie, um, uh, Michigan State didn't win the Big Ten. No. What had happened was that uh, Michigan State – did win the Big Ten, but mm-hmm. they had played in the Rose Bowl the year before, and you couldn't go twice in a row. Oh, that's right. And Notre Dame, um, and how about this? Uh, what would happen today if this happened? Notre Dame um, turned down any bowl bids because the school administration said that no, that would interfere with uh, classes. Yeah, that finals a, before the. They had the finals before the 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 Christmas holiday. Mm-hmm. And uh, that I remember the hype around that game. Uh, it was it was uh, just a phenomenon, and uh, it actually got higher TV ratings than the first Super Bowl did. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Little known trivia facts. There you go. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to step aside and hear from our friends at Amazon. And when we return, we'll close things out with some uh, some chat about uh, what's going on in the baseball situation after the trades. Tim, I'm sure, will want to weigh in on that one. And we'll touch base a little bit on uh, what we're seeing thus far as uh, NFL training camps have opened up around the country. So after this word from Amazon, we'll be back. We'll talk a little bit about baseball and football on this, the Sunshine Boys podcast. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Amazon Prime channels and HBO Now. Are you a fan of Game of Thrones? I know I am. How about Ballers with Dwayne Rock Johnson? That's an outstanding show. This week with John Oliver. Maybe it's HBO's fine boxing series or the outstanding movies that they have. 
Look, HBO has set the standard for quality television programming for years. We have HBO Now, which is part of a great lineup of Amazon Prime Video channels, which gives you HBO at a reduced price, even cheaper than a standalone subscription. That's right. We can get you HBO Now cheaper than you can get it in a standalone subscription. Look, you can take HBO Now with you anywhere. You can see all that outstanding programming when you want to see it, where you want to see it. Watch it on your phone. Watch it on your tablet, your laptop, or any streaming video device. Hey, look, if you're not sure that you, you know, want to subscribe to HBO Now, the best streaming video service that money can buy, hey, look, we're going to give you a chance to check it out for free. That's right, free. For one week, you can watch all the quality series and movies on HBO Now for free. All you have to do is check it out on HBO, on Amazon Prime channels. Just click the link in our description box and start watching HBO Now anywhere for seven days for free. And we guarantee you're going to come back and you're going to take advantage of that Amazon Prime channels discount for HBO Now. Welcome back to the Sunshine Boys podcast. I'm Jim Williams, your host with Ira Kaufman and Joe Henderson, the Sunshine Boys themselves. Tim Williams up in Boston. Timbo, uh, you know, we the um, Major League Baseball trade deadline came and passed, and now we are down to the serious situation of let's, you know, make that uh, start that run for the pennant. Um your thoughts on who did well during the uh, the trade deadline? Well, I think the big headline is that the Yankees got the pitcher they need. They really needed to upgrade their starting rotation. Luis Severino's been great, but he's a rookie. And by the end of September and by October, who knows what you're going to get out of him. I don't know if there, you know, there might be a point where the Yankees actually start to limit him because he's having such a great season, but they don't want to bank too much on a rookie having his career year right now. They want him to have a nice long career. So adding Sonny Gray to their rotation was a real win for them. I think the Dodgers did very well getting you Darvish. I think the Nationals did very well upgrading their bullpen. And I appreciate that there are a bunch of teams out there like the Chicago Cubs and the Boston Red Sox that could have made a panic move but didn't overreact to a few weird weeks and just stayed the course and just made minor upgrades i think a lot of people did well in this trade deadline but i think the two the the real co-winners are the dodgers and the yankees for getting the top pieces they need and top starters that will be in playoff rotations should well the dodgers are pretty much going to make the playoffs but both of those trades were made with the playoffs in mind, with October in mind. Joe, any thoughts about the trade situation? Well, I, I uh, will resist taking a victory lap for uh, saying a week ago that the Dodgers should target you, Darvish, um, and they did. And I think that's going to end up being um, maybe the the one that tips the overall balance uh, of power in baseball. Uh, Dodgers were already the best team. They had some issues with uh, Clayton Kershaw, as we know. But assuming he's back and healthy uh, in October, and now you had this guy, uh, there you can't take a breath against the Dodgers. They're all over you uh, on, on both sides of the ball. And I just don't, uh, you know, I don't think that they could have done any better. Um, Yankees, uh, as Tim mentioned, uh, Sonny Gray, great move. Um, didn't give up too much. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, right here in, uh, in in beautiful sunny Florida, really took strong steps to address their bullpen, and um, they've they've hit a you know the, a bit of a a rough patch here. Uh, coming out of the All-Star break, they uh, they had a rough weekend in New York. Should have gotten a split, but um, had had a fielding issue that cost them one game. Mm-hmm. What they about are, Lucas? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, but I I do think that they are 
they have enough time to make it up. They're clearly in the hunt. And um, I would not be surprised to see the Rays uh, come out of this uh, as a wild card team. I was um, pleased, at least for the Rays standpoint, that they uh, were able to pick up Lucas Duda. I thought that wasn't a bad uh, – it was kind of an under-the-radar thing. But uh, Duda's a good bat either to put in the lineup or to have coming off the bench. Oh, absolutely. And we can already see the difference that he is making in that lineup. That is just uh, – he he brings uh, uh, a a home run threat that uh, – you know, will that the Rays needed? Now they they are one of the the, the leading teams, uh, power teams in baseball this year. But when you add this guy in there, uh, he it, he's the difference maker. And you're right, that one didn't really get the notice that maybe it should have. But mm-hmm. uh, there was another one uh, that that was interesting. Um, the gave Tim Beckham away. Uh, Rays did to uh, to mm-hmm. Baltimore for a, a low level minor leaguer, and Beckham. If if uh, is the answer to a trivia question, uh, who was the player that was taken ahead of Buster Posey in the draft? And it was it was Tim Beckham when the Rays had the number one pick. Uh, they'd like a do over on that one. I'm yeah, sure Ira. I'm sure Ira would not allow it, but yeah. It well, would. that that's true, but uh, the. In Beckham's case, he he had actually become a serviceable major leaguer, and but the problem was, uh, I referenced the uh, the unfortunate fielding gaffe uh, at the end of what should have been the end of the game uh, against the Yankees last week, that allowed the Yankees to stay alive and then they eventually win it in extra innings. Well, that was kind of on Tim Beckham, and he had he had issues in the field, and the Rays had extra bodies there. And what it came down to was that, that he wasn't going to get full-time playing time, and they just didn't really think that he would have been a uh, a positive influence trying to pick up these other teammates while sitting on the bench. Right. Is that a nice way to put it? That's a nice and, way to put uh, it. And so they, they basically said, Baltimore, uh, you know, give us a bag of donuts for him, and that's what they got. You know um... – I'd like to get you guys' uh, thoughts on this. Um, here in the DMV, there was another under-the-radar kind of thing, like the Lucas Duda thing, and that was the Nationals picked up Howie Kendrick. And uh, he has been phenomenal in the short period of time that they picked him up. He's a he's a great bat. He's a Vlad Guerrero kind of guy to me. You know, it's one of these things where he'll you, you can throw the ball two feet above his head and he'll hit it. You can throw the ball almost on the ground and he looks like he's playing cricket and hit it. Um, he's a, and he's a good uh, utility guy, he plays all the infield positions, plays most of the outfield. Um, but the interesting thing in my mind, Jeremy Hellickson to the Orioles made no sense. And the other thing that the Orioles did, which made no sense to me is they had an opportunity to really help their minor league system by getting rid of Zach Britton. And they didn't. And uh, sometimes, you know, I, I know the old saying, sometimes it's a trade that you don't make is the best trade. But if you're um, in the Orioles situation where you have a somewhat depleted minor league system and you've got the Dodgers, the Astros and the Nationals willing to give you some of their top prospects to get somebody and you hold out for, you know, more than a king's ransom. And then you get nothing. Uh, I I think they might have been the biggest losers in the whole group. Well, that that's a they really needed to make a move one way or the other. And I I would be willing to say that if you were ranking all the GMs by how they handle the end of July, Dan Duquette would be near the bottom. And that that goes back to his time in Boston as well. Trade deadline deals for that guy have been a mixed bag at best when when it's time to cut bait with a team he tends to go for it when it's time to go for it they come up with underwhelming moves that's kind of been his career and he's done a fantastic job with the baltimore orioles helping get that team back on track helping move them 
forward, but they they had a really rough trade deadline, and it seems like they really consider themselves contenders in some way, shape, or form, which is hard to believe looking at the standings and looking at the season they've had thus far. But there's also, at the same time, there were plenty of rumors that they could have gone way overboard with cutting bait on their team and trade Manny Machado, which I think would have been absolutely foolish. So at least give them credit for that, that they didn't trade the future of their organization for the time being. I know that he's only there for another year and a half and then he hits free agency, but I I think they should try and keep him before they try and get rid of him. Well, that's going to be difficult for them, and which is why I think they should have sold high. Because next year, all of a sudden, unless you trade him in the winter, he's a rent player. And they brought a treasure trove of, of talent into, uh, into Baltimore. And I, I agree with you. I don't understand it, why they apparently do think that they are contenders. They're not. Uh, Joker team now since really they had a good start to the season and first good month maybe and then since then they've been uh, not very good and so this is the time where shrewd GMs uh, set the stage for next year and Baltimore did, did not do that yeah it's kind of a very weird situation I, you know I'm wondering how much of it was the front office beyond Dan Duquette and whether it was the Angelos situation or whatever. There, There's always some sort of craziness that comes along. Well, look, guys, um, i tell you what. Let's wrap things up, uh, if you don't mind. Ira, of course, unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, uh, had to bop away. The uh, Buccaneers are in the midst of uh, practicing, and he, of course, is out there uh, following it up. And uh, you know, by all means, check Ira's stuff out at uh, Joe Buck Fan and uh, – and uh, he will, um, you'll find out what's going on with the Buccaneers there. And so we will uh, say thanks for Ira being with us. And uh, he, of course, as I said, had to had to leave. Anyway, uh, final thoughts from uh, Tim and Joseph. Tim, final thoughts and your social media. Well, I think last night might be the highest bar that baseball set for a while for game of the year. It's going to take quite a bit to clear this last night the red sox beat the indians 12 to 10 in a game started by both of those teams aces carrasco and sale respectively both got rocked um both gave up five runs or more both of the team's closers cody allen for the indians and craig kimbrell for the red sox gave up multiple runs in the ninth inning so it didn't go according to schedule but you have a fantastic catch that really just set the game to another level when Austin Jackson jumped into the bullpen to make a um, beautiful catch in right field. That was a fantastic game. It was everything you want in a baseball game. And you hear a lot about what baseball doesn't have, what baseball used to have. But what baseball has right now is something really special, and it's not just a couple of teams. So this is a time to start checking back in on baseball as these pennant races heat up. If you've been out on baseball for a little bit, now is the time. And you can follow me on Twitter at Tim Writes Sports. Dr. Henderson. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at J Henderson Tampa, and I will give a shout out. Uh, uh, story that kind of flew under the radar last night, uh, and it's to Evan Longoria of the Tampa Bay Rays, who became only the second Ray to hit for the cycle, the Astros. And uh, fittingly enough, uh, it, his uh, final hit was a double with two outs in the ninth. The Rays were ahead at the time, and they wound up winning the game. He was initially called out at second base. They had to do a, uh, a challenge, and the challenge showed that he was safe. And um, Longoria, guys, um, uh, he's been with the Rays since uh, he, he was 
drafted, came up as a rookie, and he's been there nine seasons now. He has a contract that runs a few more years. Uh, he may be the first guy to stay with the Rays for for his entire career. Normally, the Rays start, you know, players get to, to Longoria's stage, they start trying to move them on. But Evan Longoria is the face of this franchise. He's having a pretty good season. He's got 17 home runs. Uh, he's uh, a solid, solid defender at third base. He, he's a gamer. He's there every night. Uh, pretty quiet guy. Doesn't say much. When he does, it's worth listening to. And uh, good on him for getting the cycle. He's pretty durable, too, isn't he? Very durable. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe he'll never be the uh, transcendent superstar that uh, everybody predicted um, when he first came up. But he has been a remarkably consistent, solid player for the Rays. And you know what? You mentioned durability. He plays on a rock pile there at Tropicana Field. And I think that has taken a toll on him physically. But it's uh, 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 an unusual night when you don't see his name on the lineup card. Where's yeah. he in Tampa Bay sports history at this point? He's got to be rising that list in um, the sports figures in, in the area. There are, Obviously, there are a few guys from the Bucks that that are probably at the top of the list, but he's got to be up there with any lightning player, I, I'd imagine. He, he's... Easily top ten Tampa Bay area professional athlete. Well, that's a that's a great question. Um, you you start with the Bucks and and the Hall of Famers, you know Derek Brooks, Warren Sapp, um, uh, Marty St. Louis from the from the Lightning. I think um, simply because the Lightning won a Stanley Cup on his watch, and the, and the Rays didn't make it to the World Series in the playoffs several times. Uh, with Longoria, but um, we have yet to win a ring. But he, uh, when when you look at the Rays, Rays have been around 20 years now. Um, he is the one guy that jumps off the screen at you as the guy who really was the catalyst in the turnaround of that of that organization. Uh, we all know their uh, their sordid history when they got started. Uh, Andrew Friedman drafted him. Couldn't believe his good luck. I think uh, Longoria fell to the Rays at number three that year that they drafted him. They brought him up right away, gave him a huge contract about a week into his pro career that is still in effect today. It's the ultimate, you know, sacrifice maybe a little money later to, uh, to you know, get security now. Uh, Longoria took the deal, and he has never complained about being – below market wage. He's never said, I want to out of Tampa. He's been a fixture in the community. He's um, active. He's, he's a, he's a credit. And, uh, you know, uh, he is what we would call a gamer. Is that fair? I think so. That brings to a close yet another edition of Sunshine Boys podcast. You know, if you don't subscribe to us, then shame on you. It's an easy thing to do. All you have to do is go to the iTunes store. You can go to Google Play. Or you can go where everybody gets all the outstanding podcasts, be it, oh, goodness, politics, sports, entertainment, any genre you want. That, of course, is Stitcher, the number one place for podcasts in the country. All right? Along with the very simple clicking on the Blog Talk Radio icon outside our player. Very simple. So four ways to get there iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, and you're subscribed to the Sunshine Boys. will come directly to your phone. You don't even have to touch anything. Just subscribe once, and we'll be there every week, okay? Well, special thanks to our guest, Rafi Kohan, author of The Arena, Inside the Tailgating, Ticket Scalping, Mascot Racing, Dubious Funding, and Possibly Haunted Monuments of American Sports Outstanding work by Rafi. Uh, the, you can click on the link in our description box. It'll take you to Amazon where you can buy the book. We highly recommend that you buy The Arena by Rafi Kohan. 
And let's say goodbye to our cast of characters. That's right, Ira Kaufman, Joe Henderson, who are the Sunshine Boys themselves. Tim Williams up in Boston. And once again, as we said, Rafi Kohan. I'm Jim Williams, your host for the Sunshine Boys podcast. Until next week, have a wonderful weekend and be safe out there. Enjoy whatever sporting event you choose to go to. Thank you.